Well, will you turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and actually also ending in verse 1. Um, that's page 1199 in your pew Bible. Again, this is James chapter 1, verse 1. And Bruce is beginning a new series um, on the book of James um, called Real Faith, Real Life. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Father God, we just uh, come to you in Jesus' name and thank you so much for uh, this church. Thank you for the um, freedoms that we have to gather and to worship you without um, fear of uh, serious persecution. And Father, just be with Pastor Bruce this morning as he uh, teaches us from your word. God, help us to have open ears and open hearts so that we can apply with our hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I just want to welcome all the uh, Promise Kids and Kingdom Kids that are in here worshiping with us on this holiday weekend. And uh, this is our family worship service that we, we have six of these family worship services throughout the year on the holiday weekends. And so this is one of them. The next one will be July 3rd and, of course, Labor Day weekend as well. And so, parents, if you have kids sitting with you, especially preschoolers, let me just set your hearts at ease. We understand they're going to be fidgety. They may even be disruptive a little bit. They may cry. They may do whatever, and it's quite all right. It's not going to bother me one bit, and we welcome the kids. In fact, we love having the kids in our worship service. We think it's a good thing at least six times a year uh, for our kids to worship with us at least six times a year. And, uh, and so we welcome them. And parents, if you need to excuse yourself with your child, listen, please feel free to do that. There's no shame, no embarrassment in doing that whatsoever. And so we love having uh, our kids here with us. And I, I hope you'll feel the same way as we dive into the book of James here. In fact, we're, as Kevin said, we're starting a brand new series. It's a summer series in which we're going to be going through the book of James called Real Faith, Real Life. And uh, James is a rather short letter. In fact, it's only five chapters long, and it consists of 108 verses total. And uh, James is one of the most practical books that you will find in all of the New Testament. It's, it looks a little bit like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, just dressed up in New Testament clothes. Now, I will say from the start here that over the years... Uh, Critics, at least some critics, have taken issue with this particular book because it seems to be void of theology. In fact, it seems to even be missing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so generally, if you read through uh, any of the other New Testament books, you'll likely see the words Jesus in it. You'll see the words Christ on the pages. In fact, oftentimes, appearing multiple times on those pages throughout those New Testament books. But James seems to say very little about Jesus Christ. In fact, James, I mean Jesus, is, is mentioned only two times in this letter. And we just heard the first time here in verse 1, which leaves all the rest of the book to only 
mention Jesus Christ once. Therefore, it's not surprising that James does not say anything about the the incarnation of Jesus Christ or his crucifixion or even his resurrection. And so we might even worry as we come to this book here that James is is not very gospel-centered. And this suspicion that some people have might It's not helped when it appears that James even contradicts the Apostle Paul. Whoa, how can that happen? It even looks as though James takes one of Paul's most cherished teachings that we are justified by faith alone, and then he kind of turns it on its head by writing in James chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In fact, that was enough for Luther to kind of fume, James mangles the scriptures and thereby opposes Paul in all scripture. Strong words by Luther, but misguided words nonetheless. James, I want us to know from the start here, does not contradict Paul's teaching. Instead, as we will see as we progress through this series, James rather complements Paul's teaching. James shows us that Faith and works are not enemies, but friends. Now, we understand from the rest of Scripture, and even in James here, that we don't work to get saved. Rather, we work out our faith because we are already saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so for James, a faith that does not produce works is a faith that is dead or worthless. Why? Well, for James, works uh, authenticates one's faith. In fact, it adorns our faith. And so here's the big idea of the book of James. Here's the purpose of James or the, his goal in writing the book of James. And we'll just give it up front here. James is exhorting us to live out real faith in real life. So this is a very practical book for us. The book of James is essentially a a training manual on how to practice our faith in real life. It's not that James discounts the importance of sound doctrine and theology, but rather he wants to see that doctrine and theology affect how we live in real life. In other words, for James, talk is cheap. For James, he, he wants to see the results. He's not interested in just hearing about your, your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to see your practice of that faith in real life. In fact, 50% of the verses in the book of James, 54 out of 108, in fact, some commentators even say it's a little slightly more than that, But nonetheless, 50% of these verses contain imperative statements or or commands for us to do. In fact, it's it's why one commentator says or calls James a a do this, a do that book, which taken to heart will dynamically affect our lives on every single level. And so James is after one thing in our lives, living out real faith faith. In real life. That is the point of the book of James. So let's dive into who James is, the author of this book. And what we see here in point number one is that James was written by a surprising author. Notice again how James introduces himself 
in the first part of verse 1. He simply writes, he begins by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most scholars believe that James wrote this letter around the mid-A.D. 40s. And so to kind of give you context, that simply means that James wrote this letter about 10 years or so after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. James was a rather common name in the first century, just as is common for us today. But when the author calls himself James without any further identification, it is implying that his audience, his readers, they already know who he is. And so this James is very well known to his audience, easily identified from all the other people they know named James. But that's not the case with us, is it? And so the first question, what we need to ask here is, well, which James wrote this book? After all, there are several people in the New Testament by the name James, but we can narrow it down to probably three of them. There was James, the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John. But this James was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred in AD 44 by King Herod. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12, which kind of rules him out as being the author of the book of James. And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus. In fact, this disciple was known as James the Less. How would you like that title? Yeah, I'm James the Less. Boost your ego, don't it? To be known as James the Less. Uh, But James the Less, even though he was one of the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus, there's no concrete evidence that he was the one that wrote this book. And that leaves us now with the, the third James. And most scholars believe this James is the author of the book of James. But he's a surprising author. You say, why? Well, when you consider who this James is, which brings us to the first point here. Notice under this, James was a half-brother of Jesus Christ. A half-brother. And we say half-brother since James was the biological offspring of both Joseph and Mary. Whereas Jesus was born from Mary, but not from Joseph. What's interesting is to listen to what it says in Matthew 13, 55. After hearing Jesus teach, the people of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth say, is not this the carpenter's son? They're speaking of Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Paul later on will write in Galatians 1.19, he says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so if we could gather all the people who've ever lived, James would, would certainly have to stand out from the crowd as a man with a very unique relationship to our Savior, Jesus Christ. James is the little brother of Jesus. How would you like that for sibling rivalry? It's not hard to imagine the mixed feelings James must have had growing up with the world's greatest brother, literally. After all, Jesus was God's gift to the world. Talk about pressure. Talk about need for some attention. I wonder how many times growing up, James maybe heard his parents say, how come you can't be more like your brother? James, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, as you might imagine, as Jesus grew, became an adult, as 
as his public ministry began to grow, opinions about Jesus also grew increasingly divided among the public and even among his own family. We learn in Matthew 13 that none of Jesus' siblings believed his claim to be the Messiah. In fact, they were offended that their brother was claiming this. In fact, Mark tells us that James and his family thought Jesus was rather crazy when they heard a crowd had gathered in their home to hear Jesus teach so that they could not even eat. And so what do they do? Jesus' family tries to interrupt his home Bible study by telling the people in Mark 3.21, listen, listen, just leave. He is out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then John adds in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so one of the first things that we hear about James is that although he is the brother of Jesus Christ, he did not even believe in Jesus Christ. And yet surprisingly, he is the author of the book of James. Now, you got to be scratching your head about that. Or at least we should, and we ought to be asking, well, what changed? What transpired in his life to where he now, later on, would write this letter? Well, that brings us to number two here, observation. James was a witness of Jesus' resurrection. You see, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus appeared to James, and that was more than enough evidence for James to believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, really is the risen Savior. In fact, Paul gives us this explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 through 7. Listen to what he says in verses 3 through 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, what Paul just wrote there, that's the essence of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on, he says in verses 5 through 7, and that he, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, that is the 12 disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is Paul's way of saying they have passed on, they've died. And then he appeared to James, that is the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. So, so what happened here to James? Listen, James saw his brother who had been crucified and died, and now he's alive. He's raised from the dead. And it was a very personal meeting, and we know nothing about it except that Jesus appeared to James in his resurrected body. Now, can you imagine that meeting between Jesus and his little brother James? Can you imagine the joy bursting into James' heart when he saw his brother was alive? Can you imagine the brokenness when he perhaps realize now for the first time, oh, he is more than a man. He is who he said he was. He's actually the son of God. And can you imagine now the devotion and the obedience that would, 
mark James's life from that point forward when he realized that Jesus truly is Lord. He is the Savior. And perhaps at that meeting, James responded like Thomas, the disciple, did when he saw firsthand with his eyes the risen Savior. And Thomas declared at that moment in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. I wonder if James declared that, verbalized that to the Savior, Jesus Christ, his brother. However, James responded, we know that he was now a changed man after this encounter with the risen Savior. Shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, what we find just a few shortly thereafter is the disciples are now worshiping Jesus Christ in the upper room in Jerusalem And among all those disciples worshiping Jesus, who do we find? You read about it in Acts 1, verse 14. There is James and the rest of his family. The predominant belief in church history is that Jesus actually commissioned his brother James into ministry. And we know through the book of Acts that James would would become the leader in the church in Jerusalem, which brings us to our third observation here about James, is that he was a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul calls James in Galatians 2.19. And what it means when, when Paul uses that term, he's a pillar of the church, is that James was a key leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a foundational leader in this church. And we know later on in Acts chapter 15, that James was a very prominent leader at the Jerusalem Council. You can read about that. We don't have time to go into it, but that council, known as the Jerusalem Council, it established that both Jews and Gentiles are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. James is the leader of that council. In fact, James, he actually gave the concluding speech at that council. Afterwards, he would write a letter affirming salvation by faith alone apart from works. Interesting. It's also interesting that James became known as James the Just. You say, why is that? He became known as that because of his own personal righteousness and his passion to promote righteousness in other believers. And we see this passion in his letter, but it's always within the greater zeal for the grace and mercy of God. And this leads us to our fourth observation about James, is he was a martyr for the Christian faith. A martyr for the Christian faith. We learn this not from scriptures, but from church history. That James was martyred in A.D. 62, for his commitment, his dedication, his loyalty to the truth that Jesus was more than just a carpenter's son. That he was the Son of God. He is the risen Savior. And when you piece the stories together, James, it is told, was brought to the top of the temple there in Jerusalem where they threw him off And then they picked up stones and stoned him. In fact, at least one record says that someone actually then grabbed hold of a club and beat him in the head until he finally died. Tradition says 
that as James was dying, he prayed words similar to those of Jesus Christ when he was dying on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You think his brother, Jesus, had an impact on his life? Oh, you bet so. In fact, one unique description of James comes from a a church historian who says that his nickname was Camel Knees. Hence the title of the sermon, if you're wondering about that. The knees of camels are, are rather large. If you go to the Kansas City Zoo and you see those camels, you'll notice that. They're, they're leathery and large-looking. And it is said that James spent so much time in the temple on his knees in prayer that over time his knees became calloused and hard and looked like the knees of camels. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the heart of James. The man who, who had once laughed at Jesus now lived for Jesus. Which brings us to our fifth observation. In fact, it's, it's James' own testimony as he begins to write this letter where we learn that James was a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, given what we just learned about James, I think it's interesting how he describes himself in this opening verse of this letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's interesting because given what we know about James, he could have pulled rank by opening his letter with these words. James, the brother of Jesus Christ. I grew up in the same house with Jesus, the Messiah. Or perhaps James could have led his letter with these words. James, an apostle, personally commissioned by Jesus Christ, and one of the few who saw the resurrected Jesus. Or James could have even wrote, James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the largest church in the world. And all those statements are true, but none of that is mentioned in his opening introduction. Only this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what James is doing here? He is letting us know from the get-go of this book. He is telling us something from the very beginning what his highest privilege in life is, his greatest priority. He says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He defines himself by his relationship of active faith in Jesus Christ and his obedient service to God. And by mentioning God and the Lord Jesus Christ together on equal terms here, James is also affirming the very deity and lordship of Jesus Christ. Something else that I find interesting is that two authors in the New Testament use this term servant to identify themselves. Other authors in the New Testament, predominantly the Apostle Paul, but even Peter does this, they use the words apostle in their introduction to tell the readers who they are. But there are only two authors who who use this word, this term servant. One is James, as we just see here, and the other is Jude. Now, what did James and Jude both have in common? Well, they are both half-brothers of Jesus Christ. So isn't it interesting that two people who could have 
claimed authority, could have claimed influence through their sibling connection to Jesus Christ, instead chose to identify themselves simply as servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It kind of makes you wonder, at least for me, do you think the reason that so many Christians struggle to live out real faith in real life is because they've replaced the biblical meaning, the biblical idea of what it means to be a Christian. They think that if you come to Jesus, you're going to have your best life ever. It's going to be a wonderful life when you come in saving faith to Jesus Christ. Michael Horton summarized part of the problem when he wrote, and I quote, Jesus Christ is now a coach with a good game plan. He's a source of empowerment, a helper for the morally sensitive to become better. Christ came to improve our existence. He is a resource for what we have already decided we want. You see, Christianity has been sold with this message that people just need to try Jesus because life's great with Jesus. And so people try Jesus out until they hit a bump in the road, and then they say, hey, I thought you said Jesus had a wonderful plan for my life. Because after all, sickness isn't wonderful. Bankruptcy isn't wonderful. Miscarriage isn't wonderful. A cheating spouse isn't wonderful. Persecution for the sake of Christ isn't wonderful. A wayward child isn't wonderful. And the list goes on and on and on of things that are not wonderful, that still come into our lives as believers. And so James is teaching us something here from the very beginning. He's teaching us something about real faith in Jesus Christ, Christianity. And that is, it's an invitation to become a servant of God. In fact, the word here, it actually means, sometimes translated in your Bibles, as a bondservant or even a slave to God where he is our Lord, and we serve him even in the face of difficulty and trials. One pastor and author, he writes this. He says the reason the average church in America has stopped studying the book of James is because they can't get past verse 2 that talks about joy and trials. What kind of wonderful life is that? And they can't get past verse 2 because they have no conception of verse 1. What it means to be a servant of God. See, here's the truth. Whether you realize it or not, whether you know it or not, everyone is a slave to something. Everyone here serves some master. The question is, whose slave are you? Who or what are you serving at this moment? What is your highest priority? What is your highest passion in life? And pretty much that's what you are serving. You see, after seeing the risen Savior and realizing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, he is the Son of God, he is the risen Savior, James dedicated his life as a servant of God, and he died as a martyr living out real faith in real life. As we 
move through verse 2 and even through the rest of this book, the only thing I'm convinced after reading through this book, the only thing that's going to motivate us here as Christ followers to, to live out real faith and real life is when we realize and we begin to embrace that Jesus died to rescue us from the, the bondage of sin that we were once in, and we are now servants or even slaves to God. And oh, oh, that we as a church here, we as individuals, that we would simply embrace our identity in Christ as servants of God who live out real faith in real life. That's what the book of James is about. The book of James was written by this surprising author, but let me tell you, our lives are surprising as well when you consider where we once were before we came to the realization of who Christ is. You look in our lives before Christ, and we didn't believe necessarily. We laughed maybe, we mocked, we were skeptical. Most of all, we were in the bondage of sin. And oh, but the grace of God to open up our eyes and our hearts to see our need for salvation, to see our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is who he claims to be. He is the Son of God, and he is risen. And he did die for my sins in my place to set me free from that life that I once lived, that I was born into, because now I am born again by the Spirit of God, the power of God, and I am set free from that to now be a servant and a slave to that master, the one who offers me ultimate freedom where this world can't. James was also, number two, was written to a scattered audience. It was written to a scattered audience. James writes in the second part of verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, traditionally, that phrase, the 12 tribes, it simply represents Israel, the nation of Israel. And the dispersion, it signifies the Jews that were scattered throughout the pagan world, beginning with the exile of Israel by the Assyrians, and then later on by Judah by the Babylonians. And so now we're fast-forwarding over 700 years or so, or 400, I should say, and James is using language by this 12 tribes that every Jew would understand. And he now applies it to his audience in the first century. So who is his audience in context of the book of James? Well, notice it. The 12 tribes are Jewish believers who have been scattered outside of Palestine or Israel due to their persecution. We know this when you read the book of Acts. In fact, beginning in Acts chapter 8, Persecution came to the church at Jerusalem, and those Jewish believers were scattered, and it was God's way of dispersing the gospel across the world. Most of these Jewish Christians have been scattered, as I already alluded to, because of the persecution coming into their lives. In fact, the Roman emperor at that time was driving these Jews into exile, and under his rule, the Jews were driven out of their homeland. Some were even driven out of Rome. And it is likely that most of these believers that James is now writing to perhaps had begun following Jesus in or around or near Jerusalem. In fact, they may, many of them, had been under his pastoral care in the church at Jerusalem. But now, 
these same believers are facing double trouble. Being Jewish, they, they were hated and persecuted by the Gentiles. And being, quote, Jewish Christians, they are now facing persecution from their own people who did not believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so talk about trouble here for these believers. These Jewish believers were facing trouble on every level. Everywhere they turn, they're finding trials and troubles and difficulty. And as a pastor, James now writes this letter to exhort them to live out their faith in these real-life situations in which they're facing. For this reason, what James writes in the rest of these chapters, every verse, let me tell you, it is so relevant and so practical for all believers living anywhere in the world who are facing trials and troubles today. Oh, this is a practical and relevant letter for us. In fact, notice James's greeting to these scattered believers. Notice what he says in verse 1. He's one word. He greets them with one word. He simply says, greetings. And so with this one word, James encourages these scattered believers to, to rejoice in the midst of their suffering, difficulties, persecutions. Now what's interesting about this, unlike the Apostle Paul, who almost always greets his audience with what two words? Some of you may know this. Apostle Paul, when he writes a letter, check this out on the letters he writes. He almost always begins with grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. Which, man, who doesn't like that? We love that, right? Who doesn't want grace and peace in their life and, and to be blessed with that? And then not only that, the Apostle Paul almost always then delves into after he says that, he almost always delves into this idea where he then praises them or gives thanksgiving for them and then prays for them. But for James, he simply writes one word to his audience, greetings. But this word means so much more than just hello. Because in our culture today, when we hear greetings, that's what we think of. Oh, that person's telling me hello. Hi. That's not the idea here from James. Listen, this word greetings means to rejoice. It means to be glad. And so to James, this word was no mere formality. Listen, he knows his audience is going through trials and troubles, and those trials and troubles are real. And yet he expected what he wrote to them in this letter to encourage their hearts as they live out their faith. And so by saying greetings to them, James is encouraging all believers everywhere. That means us right here, right now today. He's encouraging us to rejoice in the Lord regardless of what troubles and trials you are facing in life. We'll look more at that next Sunday in detail. But for now, this brings us to the heart of why James wrote this letter. James was written for a steadfast application. A steadfast application. As we said earlier, the book of James is essentially a training manual on how to practice our faith in real life. In other words, the, the primary focus of this book is a steadfast application 
of real faith in real life. And James wastes no time getting to this steadfast application. When he writes in verses 2 through 4, which we will look at in detail next Sunday, but notice it with me now, where James says this. So he says, greetings, rejoice in other words, and then immediately the next verse he says what? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what James is doing for us, for him, he's saying this, the key, the key to facing real life, the kind of life you guys are living right now, is a faith in Jesus Christ that is steadfast a faith that endures through trials and troubles. That's the key. This is why James, later on in chapter 1, he says in verse 12, blessed is that person. Blessed is the man, he says, who remains what? Steadfast under trial. Blessed is that man. Later on in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You'll find an overview in the handout of what we're going to see as we go through the book of James and apply real faith in real life. I'm not going to go through that. It's simply for your benefit. But before we leave here this morning, let me give you one takeaway from the, the life of James. If there's one lesson we can learn from his life, it is this. Notice it in your notes. Real faith faces real life as a servant of God who worships the Lord Jesus Christ with joy. That's what we learn from the life of James. And that's what he's going to key on and expound on through the next five chapters. Now, remember something about James that we already learned here. James was what of Jesus Christ? James is the half-brother or was the half-brother of Jesus But Jesus says something, maybe not directly to James, but he says it indirectly to all of us here. Jesus said, being my half-brother, that is not enough. In other words, the, quote, right family, it can't save you. Even being Jesus' half-brother, was not enough to save James from his sins. Jesus told his family, including James, that biology isn't enough to save you. Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. As John wrote in John 1.10, but to all who did receive him, receive who? Receive Jesus Christ. He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Listen, a relationship with God is a matter of belief or faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
being born into the right family is not enough. Now, myself and my, I have two brothers. Most of you know my, my middle brother is Troy sitting back there. My younger brother is Todd right here. Most of you know we were born into a pastor's home. My dad is sitting back there. He was the pastor of this church for 31 years. And so when we were born, we had no choice. We were drugged all our lives. We were drugged to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We were drugged everywhere the church doors were open. And so church became a regular routine in our lives. It's just what we knew. We didn't know any different. It's not just that my dad was a pastor, but his brother was a pastor. It's not just that his brother was a pastor. His two cousins were pastors. And it's not just that, but my dad's dad, my grandfather was a pastor. His uncle was a pastor. And what I'm simply saying, I come from a whole home biology of pastors. And it's not enough to save none of my brothers. See, there had to come a point in time in my own life where I realized it doesn't matter what my family connections are. I need Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my Lord, for the forgiveness of my sins and so that I can be covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ because I cannot earn my own righteousness. I can never attain the perfection that God demands, his glory and his holiness. And James is teaching us that. Jesus said, listen, it's not enough that you're my half-brother. You need to believe. You need to be born again. And when James saw the resurrected Christ, he was completely changed at that moment through that encounter. He believed and he accepted by faith. And having believed in Jesus Christ as his own Savior and Lord, James not only became a child of God, adopted into the family of God for all eternity, but he now lived the rest of his life as a servant of God. And the question is, what about you? What about you? Have you been born again through faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have real faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins in the righteousness of Christ? And are you expressing that faith in real life now as a servant of God? Or are you still trying to be your own boss, your own master, living out your own will? Trying Jesus out, and if he works for you, great, man. I'll go along with it. I'll come to church even. But if it doesn't, I'm out of here. James shows us that real faith faces real life and does so as a servant of God who worships Jesus with joy. Some of you may know the name of Charles Spurgeon. On June 7th, 1891, Charles Spurgeon gave his final sermon. He was a pastor in England, in London, for many, many, many years. This was the last of his some 3,600 sermons that Spurgeon preached in his career. And in that final sermon, he said, and I simply quote, every person must serve somebody. We had no choice as to that fact. 
Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend on it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, our Jesus, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. Oh, that that would be your testimony. that you can point back to a place in your life where you came to the realization that Jesus is who he says he was. He is the Son of God. He is the risen Savior. And I am a sinner in need of him because he is the only hope for my life. And having come to that realization, man, you bow the knee, you humble yourself, you confess your sin, and by faith you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And now from that moment on, you live the rest of your life as a servant of God, serving Him and Him only. Oh, that that would be your testimony. With your heads bowed, and as we pray, Perhaps the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart even now. Would you cry out to Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to be your Savior and Lord, and you dedicate the rest of your life to serving Him and doing so with real faith in real life? Would you take a moment just to cry that out in the quietness of your own heart, for the rest of us who have already come to Jesus in saving faith, would you open up your heart and your mind to see your need to live out your faith in a more genuine way, in a more dedicated way in the life that you have, that God has given to you? Heavenly Father, we humble our hearts before you. As James himself says in this letter, if we will draw near to you, God, you will draw near to us. And if we will humble ourselves, you will raise us up. And so we do that right now. Lord, we confess that our faith is not everything it should be. Help us to see that there are things in our lives that need repentance or that need adjustment. And we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would change us and that we would devote ourselves to be your servants. And Father, I pray that you would use this series to help us to live out our faith in real life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, obviously, I invite you, and I do more than invite you. I plead with you to come back next Sunday as we continue in this series on James, and we look at verses 2 through 4, where James talks about trials, but not just trials, but consider it joy when you meet those trials, which is most, the most baffling concept that we might ever hear in life. And yet, there's a reason why that can be true in our lives. Come back next Sunday and find out.